0: quite a blessing to have the special music. We're always privileged to have wonderful special music here in Charlotte. So Thank you, Mrs. Uh, Ross and Martin, for that. It's been a busy week at the office. <clears throat> a lot of exciting things going on, and uh, I know we're all praying for Mr. Weston's TWP up in Manhattan, so hopefully that will, will go well. Brethren, there are two types of of physical stress, and I'm talking about stress that can be applied to physical material. Two types. There's compressive stress, which is uh, what the name would imply. It's when you are compressing, uh, compressing something physical. And there's tensile stress. Tensile stress is essentially uh, the effect of something being bent or pulled. Now, tensile strength is the amount of stress, the amount of stretching or bending that a material can withstand before it fails, before it snaps, before it fractures, before it fails. Tensile strength is very important. It's important for things like skyscrapers, spaceships, medical equipment, uh, ships, cars, Utility cables, uh, swords, and also metaphorically for Christians. Metaphorically very important for Christians. Let's turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 and verse 17. Here James tells us that wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. This is a passage you've read many times. Gentle. Willing to yield, willing to yield, willing to yield. There is strength in being able to yield righteously. And that's a lesson God wants us to learn. There is strength in being able to yield our will to God's will. That is a special type of strength. Back to the physical properties of tensile strength. Let's talk about steel in bridges just for a moment. Among bridges, the material that's most favored is as you probably know, steel. <clears throat> Why is steel favored? Well, steel is suitable for bridges with very long uh, spans. You think of the fact that Mr. Ames was a an engineer and so he had to figure out uh, what type of material would perform well or withhold, uh, stand up under pressure. So you don't make a bridge out of something that's going to break or fracture with pressure, with pressure. Normal building steel has a compressive strength so it can withstand compression about 10 times more than the compression strength of concrete. That's interesting normal building steel can withstand about 10 times more compression uh, before it fails than concrete <clears throat> however did you know that steel has a tensile strength perhaps around a 100 times more uh, you know stronger than concrete steel can withstand against being flexed it can yield a little bit and not break not fail one of the most famous bridges is the golden gate bridge the golden gate bridge the total length of the bridge from abutment to abutment is about 1.7 miles pretty long bridge about 1.7 miles it's about 90 feet wide the bridge is 90 feet wide the total weight of the bridge including the anchorages and the cables and so forth, and this is according to a 1986 measurement, is 887,000 tons. That's a number that's hard to, you know, to, to, to understand how, how much that weighs. 887,000 tons. <clears throat> the load capacity of the bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge, the load capacity, what it can uphold, what it can endure, what it can support per linear foot. For linear foot, 4,000 pounds. 4,000 pounds. The load on the uh, towers from the cables alone is 61,500 tons. Some estimate that the Golden Gate Bridge can hold about 22,500 tons of weight. I found an old uh, article from the New York Times. 1987, and at the 50th anniversary celebration for the Golden Gate Bridge in 1987, estimates are that there were about 250,000 people, a quarter of a million, on the bridge. This article has an interesting quote, and the quote is by the president of the Golden Gate Bridge Association, uh, the gentleman's name is Gary Chiomi and uh, this is his quote. He says, the bridge flattened out with all of the weight on it. The bridge flattened out. Its whole arch disappeared. The bridge had the greatest load factor in its 50-year life. Did you know that the Golden Gate Bridge can flex about 16 feet? 16 feet in severe weather. It has incredible, incredible tensile strength. It will yield but not break. That's one of the reasons it's so strong. Now, of course, Christians need to develop strength. Christians face trials. Christians bear loads. Christians deal with life. So what can we learn about the importance of being able to yield? Being able to yield and how that's a strength how that is a strength tensile strength or the ability to yield or the strength to yield is important for Christians and the title of the sermon today is simply the strength to yield the strength to yield what is tensile strength of character what is tensile strength of character well My definition simply would be that it's our ability to yield our will to God's God's will. It's our ability to yield our will to God's will. This is one of the most important uh, characteristics we can develop. Now, of course, our model for all righteousness is Jesus Christ. I won't spend a lot of time uh, discussing uh, his life, um, but I do want to bring out one example from his life which shows the importance of uh, the the strength that can come from our being willing to yield our will to God's will. And before we look at this brief instance, I want to remind you all, I won't won't turn to it because we should know it, Philippians 4.13, that's one of those memory scriptures. So as we get into the sermon and we talk about Jesus Christ and we talk about some definitions and we talk about some great men of God through the Old Testament uh, times, I want us to remember Philippians 4.13 that tells us we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. All things. Whether that's overcoming a bad habit or whether that's learning to pray more or whatever it is, we can do all all things through Christ who strengthens us. And I'll tell you a little secret at the beginning of the sermon. The key ingredient to developing Amazing tensile strength, and I don't claim to say that I represent this. I, I just say this is something I know is true, and you all know it as well, is what? It's to have Christ living in us. That's the key ingredient. We understand that. Because he had perfect tensile strength. He yielded his will to the Father. <clears throat> Again, James 3.17. What does it say? It says, the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, Willing to yield, willing to yield, willing to yield our will to that of the father. Now, just as the strongest steel can flex and carry the heaviest burdens, so the strongest minds can conform that their will to God's will. <clears throat> Just before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, you all know the account. Let's turn to Luke 22. Luke 22, just before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, he went up to the Mount of Olives to pray. Now, Jesus had perfect faith. He was perfectly righteous. But he did not desire to be tortured. He did not desire the suffering. Luke 22, verse 44 tells us very clearly He was in agony because he knew what was coming. He was in agony because he knew what was coming. Now, with no sin whatsoever, no wavering whatsoever, but he did not desire the pain, the beating, having his skin ripped away from him. He did not desire that in and of itself if there was another way. He was in agony over what he knew was going to come. And so he goes up to the Mount of Olives to pray, and you're familiar with this. Luke 22, verse 39. I want to bring out something that's a little pattern that we'll see. We'll see the pattern here, and then we'll see the pattern toward the end of the sermon with some other examples of some men of God from the Old Testament. You'll see the same pattern. And it's a law, I believe. It's a law. Uh, you, you start to understand how God's mind works, and you see patterns. And so look, look for the pattern. See if you find the pattern. Luke 22, verse 39 is where we'll pick up. So coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. So he was accustomed to going up there and meditating, spending time with God in prayer. His disciples followed him and he came to the place. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will. So here we're talking about will. If it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Tensile strength. The strength to yield. What happened right after that? Read the next verse. You'll see this pattern. You'll see this pattern. Jesus Christ was perfectly strong. Without sin, perfectly righteous, but he had to bend his will to that of the Father's. And then in verse 43, an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. But he received strength from the Father. When we yield our will to God, the Father, and God and Christ, they they are one. Their will is one for us. We receive strength from the Father. What is your tensile strength? Let me ask another question. What is your strength to yield if you do not understand your trial? That's an interesting question. What is your strength to yield if you do not understand your trial? Sometimes we will think about how would we endure or overcome a trial, and we'll meditate on that. But often I feel, sometimes I'll fall into this trap, I will oversimplify the situation and I will, uh, you know, construct a trial where I'll ask myself, how would I deal with it? But it's a trial that in my mind I understand, right? You know, you're, you're, you're told by your boss that he's going to fire you if you won't work on the Sabbath. I had that happen to me twice. Once was Sabbath, once was uh, uh, Feast of Tabernacles. I was fired from two jobs. And one was a, a very... Good job. God gave me a much better job. But, you know, that's sort of simplistic, I think. It's good to think about that. How will you handle a trial if you understand the the, the trial? But what if you don't understand the trial? What if you're dealing with something or you're confronted with a trial and you don't understand why? You don't understand the trial. And what does Hebrews 11 verse 1 tell us? Let's turn to Hebrews. You probably know Hebrews 11 1. But Hebrews 11 verse 1 tells us that faith faith is the realization the the substance the realization of things that you hope for of things hoped for but the evidence of things not seen what 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 what, what's relevant about that scripture as relates to my question well if you hope for and don't see something do you completely understand it if you hope for and don't see something, but it's been described to you, do you do you completely intimately understand? Well, no, not necessarily. <clears throat> we don't have to perfectly understand the trials we're going through in order to have faith to overcome those trials. Mr. Apartian wrote about that in an LCN. Uh, the title of his article was Let God Handle It. Let God Handle It. And here's what Mr. Apartian wrote very helpful to meditate on he wrote this Christ's disciples before their conversion also had some doubts about certain matters Uh, they would often question Jesus expecting some answer that would satisfy their curiosity and their carnal minds on one occasion the disciples and several others were totally confused when Jesus when Christ revealed to them that he was the bread which came down from heaven just what did he mean by that statement some murmured against him while others argued Patiently Christ explained I am the living bread which came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread He will live forever and the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of this of the world John 6:51. now notice what mr. Aparthean writes next That was the breaking point That was the breaking point Not only could they not understand the explanation they were offended so the bridge Broke. The pillar broke. The structure broke. Mr Apartian continues. How could they follow a man whose teachings made so little sense? <clears throat> Verse sixty six of John six uh, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Does does this remind you of the attitude of anyone you know? Yours, perhaps, Mr. Apartian asks, would you turn away from God or leave his church because something is hard to understand? <clears throat> in preparing for the sermon, I was reminded of uh, some of what Mr. Meredith, Dr. Meredith, would write about regarding, and there, he's mentioned this in many sermons, but uh, the church went through a couple uh, doctrinal revisions and struggles over the decades back in the old worldwide days. Two of the famous ones are what? Counting Pentecost and divorce and remarriage. Those were two big, big tests. And there are quote after quote after quote after quote of Dr. Meredith about this, so I didn't include them in the sermon, but he would often talk about either in sermons or write about how people, you know, it was a trial and people, many people left during those, during those times because they didn't understand. They didn't understand what God was doing. Some people left over Pentecost when Dr., when Mr. Armstrong finally figured out how to properly count it. And I'll always remember my wife's, um, uh, uh, granddad, which is my m- mother-in-law's father, uh, his old Bible correspondence course. He had noted in there the accurate way, he was an elder in the church, and he had it noted in there the accurate way to count Pentecost. I remember he, he was long dead, um, um, and, uh, I went through his, some of his old material, and, uh, he, he, he knew how to, how to calculate it properly, but, At that time that he was going through the material, the church was calculating it wrong. He didn't leave. He didn't leave. So how can we develop uh, great tensile strength? I'm going to give you five keys. Five keys. First, we need to always, when confronted with a trial, when confronted with stress... We need to seek God's guidance. First and foremost, seek God's guidance. So these will be five keys how we can develop the strength to yield or greater tensile strength, if you want the engineering term. How can we develop greater strength to yield? First, we need to always ask God for his guidance. Now, we won't turn to Romans 8:28. But we need to also remember when we ask God for his guidance, and if you want to jot down Romans eight twenty-eight, we need to remember that it tells us that all things work together for good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. If we love him, we seek him, we seek his guidance, we try to be righteous, then God will provide for us. God will provide a way of escape from trial. God will show us an answer. God will give us the strength to yield our will to his. But key number one is to seek God's guidance. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, please. 1 Peter chapter 4. When we fall into trials, 1 Peter 4, we need to remember what the Apostle Peter wrote. Do not think it strange. Do not think it odd or strange. When we fall into fiery trials. Do not think it strange. Concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice. To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed. You may also be glad with exceeding joy. <clears throat> we need to remember that God. He's all-powerful, almighty. He loves us. Things work out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And it's nothing strange when we deal with trials. God is working with us to develop the strength to yield in our character. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Another familiar verse, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. If you are a pillar, God will not bend you so much that he will break you Unless you allow your carnality to come between you and God. If Christ lives in us, we will not break. If Christ lives in us, we will flex, we will bend, we will yield our will to God's will. God will not build a structure and then send a storm against it and make it collapse, metaphorically speaking, of, of us as his, his saints. <clears throat> Seek God's guidance. Now, there's really only one scripture that I'll give you to support that point, and that's Proverbs 6, verse 23, which we should turn to there. Probably another scripture you know, but Proverbs 6, verse 23. And what does it tell us? There are many stories and scriptures I could turn to to illustrate this, but I want to move quickly. Proverbs 6, verse 23 tells us, very straightforward, that the commandment is a lamp and the law is light. Seek God's guidance. The commandment is a lamp and the law is light. When we wonder what the path forward should be, seek God's guidance. His commandments, his law, scripture will light our path notice what's coupled with that verse uh, reproofs of instruction are the way of life interesting that he's that he coupled those two thoughts because god's law does what well it does a lot of things but one thing it does is it it corrects us it corrects us so notice the coupling of the of the thought seek his law be willing to be corrected be willing to yield to his law and that will give us not only light to move forward, but also the strength to move forward. So to be reproved means to be able to be corrected. <clears throat> to be to be able to be corrected, we must be willing to yield. Point number two. <clears throat> Point number two. How can we develop the strength to yield? Seek a multitude of counsel. Seek a multitude of counsel. And I would add, not only from those who you know already agree with you. I think that's common sense, but not only from those who already agree with you. Uh, as ministers, sometimes we'll, we'll encounter that, you know, where you're you're talking to somebody and they're getting counsel from their group of friends, and just because they and their friends agree with something doesn't necessarily mean it's right. But you can reinforce, you know, a wrong idea or a wrong strategy if you don't get wise counsel and get a multitude of counsel. Mr. Ames talked about this in uh, one of his Tomorrow's World articles, as well as in a couple uh, other, in a telecast, um titled Seven Key The Tomorrow's World Article is titled Seven Keys for Peace of Mind. Seven Keys for Peace of Mind. And Mr. Ames wrote the following. He said, Are you willing to seek counsel to help face your stresses and challenges? Here is a verse from Proverbs that gives us wisdom. And then he quotes Proverbs 15, verse 22. Proverbs 15, verse 22. Without counsel, uh, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors they are established. <clears throat> Consider one more admonition. Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel will stand. End of quote. Now, this includes seeking counsel from the ministry, doesn't it? This includes seeking counsel from the ministry. Now, we don't practice the following. (laughs) But I do want to turn back to Deuteronomy 17. And just help remind us how it is important when we seek counsel from God's ministers that we take that counsel seriously. We practice getting counsel from the ministry, but we don't practice the penalty here that's found in Proverbs seventeen. Deuteronomy seventeen, sorry. Deuteronomy seventeen. Now let's begin in verse eight. Deuteronomy seventeen, verse eight. This is one reason why when ministers give counsel, they they really uh, are very careful. They should be very careful. Uh, There's there's an accountability when you give counsel. Deuteronomy 17, and let's begin in verse 8. So speaking of hard matters that would arise before the congregation, uh, verse 8, if a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of Blood guiltiness between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another. Matters of controversy within your gates. Uh, Then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So these are very important matters. Uh, could have been, um, you know, murder. It could have been, you know, serious, serious matters. And then verse 9, you go to the priests and the Levites and so forth. Verse 10, you shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce. Uh, Verse 11, according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, so their pronouncement needs to be according to the law. Uh, verse 12, now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest, th- that man who's stiff-necked, right, that man who is is stiff, who says, you know, I'm going to defy the judgment. What's the penalty? What's the penalty in verse 12? God uh, severely corrects uh, those who are rebellious those who reject uh, his law those who reject government and obviously this is not something you practice uh, in the new covenant but when we seek counsel and if we seek counsel from the church uh, we need to understand that we need to take that counsel very very seriously uh, Hebrews 13 verse 17 is that concept found in the new testament as well yes it is Hebrews 13 verse 17 Obey those who rule over you, unless you don't agree with their opinion, right? Unless you don't agree with their counsel. No, that's not what it says. It says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. Now, speaking of the ministry. Now, this, of course, does not apply, as Dr. Merith has written many, many times. This does not mean if somebody tells you or a minister tells you to violate God's law. And we stated that, you know, many, many times. But if you see counsel, if you're really getting counsel, then you need to take that counsel with, you know, with a lot of weight, <clears throat> a lot of weight. Key number three in developing the strength to yield. Keep your mind focused on the big picture. Keep your mind focused on the big picture. Matthew 6, verse 33 uh, is a very famous scripture. And it tells us to Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Won't turn there. You you know this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do we every day have the big picture in mind? In Proverbs, it tells us where there's no vision, prophetic vision, the people will cast off restraint. And I think that's something that all of us need to remember. I need to remember. If, If we're dealing with trials... Job trials, you know, family trials, work and whatever, you know, health. We need to remember the big picture. Remember what we've been called to be part of, what we've been called to do, what God's church has been called to do. <clears throat> and it will give us the strength to march forward. You know, the most successful armies in history were ones where their general or their leader uh, gave them the vision of what they needed to do whether it was charging up a hill or whether it was the Roman legions going back and forth across Italy and Gaul or Hannibal's troops, it was armies who had the vision of where they needed to go. And they could march through rain and snow and lack of food and sleep deprivation. There's great strength when we keep our mind on the big picture. You could also jot down Mark 16, verse 14 and 15. Mark 16, verse 14 and 15. And what does it tell us our mission is? The big picture. It was to go preach the gospel to the world. Mark 6, verse 14 and 15. I'm sorry, 16, verse 14 and 15. To preach the gospel to the world. So keep our minds on the big picture. So after... um, He was risen, he appeared to the eleven. In verse 15 he tells them, uh, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is our mission. And we'll have great strength if we keep our mind on the big picture. Okay, point number four. Point number four. An important one. Be willing to repent when in error. How do we develop strength to yield? Key number four: Be willing to repent when in error. Now, in the New Testament, there are two primary terms uh, for repentance, and you, you're pretty familiar with these. The one we talk about less, and whenever I pronounce Greek or Hebrew words, it's just my, you know, best effort. So, um, but the one we talk about less is metamelamai. M-E-T-A-M-E-L-O-M-A-I. Meta Malamai. M-E-T-A-M-E-L-O-M-A-I. Now, Meta Malamai is a type of regret, and it means to have a, a regret, an emotional feeling. You feel sad about something. That is what Judas Iscariot felt in Matthew 27, verse 3, when he was seized with remorse. He was seized with remorse and he returned the 30 coins, and he went out and hanged himself. That was malomai. It was, you know, deep sadness, but it wasn't metanoio, M-E-T-A-N-O-E-O. We've talked about metanoio often. That's the other uh, main term in the New Testament Greek for repentance. And what does metanoio mean? Well, metanoio means to think differently, to have a change of mind or to yield our desire, our will, to God's. To yield, to change, to be willing to yield. When one experiences metanoia, one changes their way of thinking. Now, many people can be regretful without changing their way of thinking. And you think about the person who has a, an addiction of some sort. They might feel guilty and feel bad about it, but until they really... Fully repent, metanoio, they're going to keep going back to their addiction. They might feel bad, but they haven't fully changed. <clears throat> now, the stubborn person may not even feel uh, a He may not even feel you know, guilt. The stubborn person may not be willing to yield at all. We have to be willing to yield. Or we risk cracking. Breaking, fatiguing. Now, in the Old Testament, there are also two terms for repentance. We don't talk about these as often. And these are interesting uh, terms. These are very old Hebrew words. One is nachem, N-A-C-H-A-M. Nachem means to pant or groan, to sigh. Uh, it can connote empathy. Um, it's But it often it's to pant or groan. And the other one is shab or shawb, S-H-U-W-B, in the English spelling. And shab typically means to turn back, like to turn back the waters, to turn back flocks, to turn back people. It, it can also mean a change of heart. I'm going to talk about these two Hebrew words briefly, naham and shab. When naham, N-A-C-H-A-M, is used in the Hebrew, uh in, in a verb sense, where it's a verb that's, uh, you know, being applied to somebody, to somebody's actions. Interestingly, the subject of the verb, Nahem, is usually God. And that actually makes a lot of sense. Because God doesn't need to shab, God doesn't need to repent from wrongdoing because God does no wrong. But sometimes God would groan because of what his creation was doing. Right? We know that. What's one of the famous examples? Genesis 6, verse 6. Let's turn back there. Genesis 6, verse 6. So again, God doesn't ever need to repent of wrong, but sometimes he will be grieved because of the wrong of what his creation is doing. Genesis 6, verse 6. And the Lord was sorry, groan, Nahem, that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved. In his heart. He was grieved. Nahem, He groaned. And we find this same uh, reference in Exodus 20, uh, 32. Exodus 32, verse 14. Exodus 32, verse 14. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. This is after the instance with the golden calf. When they built the calf and they were uh, idolatrizing and um, committing fornication, it was a horrible uh, scene, and so he groaned. He was grieved, Naham, over their Israel's terrible sin with the golden calf. But he relented. He relented. Now the word in the Old Testament Hebrew Shab, is different. S H U W B. And we find that all throughout it's used many times. But well, let's turn to Second Chronicles chapter seven. Second Chronicles chapter seven. For one example of an Old Testament instruction for God's people to repent, Second Chronicles seven verse fourteen. And I always love when you see when we see the parallelism between the old and new covenants, between the Old Testament and New, because mercy and law, repentance are threaded from Genesis to Revelation, and that's something that the converted mind understands. And the Protestant world does not understand that. They think the Old Testament is laws and punishment, and the New Testament is doing away with the laws. And that is absolutely wrong. You find repentance, you find mercy in the old and the new. Okay, so 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. The word shalb is found here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. National heartfelt repentance. And what happens when we repent? God strengthens us. What was the offering to ancient Israel? To strengthen the nation if they would repent. To heal their land. Let's turn to one more example where we find Shab. Uh, Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59 and verse 20. Isaiah 59 verse 20. The passage, the famous verse that talks about the Redeemer will come to Zion. Isaiah 59 verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn, Shab. Repent, turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. The Messiah, the Redeemer, Christ. He will return to those who return to him, who repent, who seek him. Now, these two words are occasionally used together. And one of the most interesting verses is Jeremiah 18, verse 18, where you'll find both of these words used together. Jeremiah 18, verse 18. And I think it's helpful because it demonstrates uh, repentance, what what repentance should feel like, what what God wants from us when he he commands us to repent. Jeremiah 18, verse 8. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it, here the first turn—if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn—here that Hebrew word is shab. to repent of their ways, to turn from evil to righteousness, to yield the national will to God's law, to yield the individual uh, will—the individual will to God's will. If they'll do that, then I, God, will have compassion, feel sorry for them, be moved for them, have pity on them. Of the evil, which is not evil, it's raw, bad, of the bad, that's a wrong, it's a bad translation, of the bad or the harm that I would do to them. You see that? that pattern when we yield our will to god's will when we yield ourselves to god he's merciful he'll give us he'll be compassionate he'll strengthen us you see that pattern key number five to building uh, the strength to yield humility humility something that uh, god wants us all to to work on humility What does Proverbs 15, verse 33 tell us? It tells us that the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Proverbs 15, verse 33. Let's go ahead and turn back there. We'll go to a couple scriptures in Proverbs. Proverbs 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is humility. Before honor is humility. Before God will raise us up. He wants us to learn to be humble before Him. He wants us to fear Him in a right way. Turn over a few pages. Proverbs 22, verse 4. Proverbs 22, verse 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Riches and honor and abundance. Proverbs 22, verse 4. You see that pattern um, throughout the Bible. God wants us to fear him, to honor him, and then he will strengthen us. Now, it doesn't mean that he'll give us, you know, millions and millions of dollars and gold-plated Cadillacs, as Dr. Meredith would mention. um, But he will provide for us, strengthen us so we can prevail through our trials, provide for us uh, according to our needs. If we fear something more than God, then we're not really humble. Before God. If we. Put something between us and God. Then we're not really humble before God. We're stiff. And what's going to survive pressure more. Stiff concrete. Or building steel. What's going to fracture faster. Sooner. Earlier. You see. tensile strength. Yielding to God's will is very important. But it doesn't mean that we're weak, and I do want to touch on that. Let's turn to Second Timothy two. Yielding to God's will <clears throat> is a strength, and it doesn't mean that we walk around, and uh, you know, our head is hung down low, and we're just weak, uh, you know, just wimpy people all all, all day long. Second Timothy chapter two. I remember a um, really good sermon that I heard at Ambassador College, and it was uh meek is not a geek and uh it was pretty it was pretty good and uh the minister made that point so second timothy chapter two what does it tell us here about a servant of the lord well a servant of the lord must not quarrel we're not supposed to walk around prideful and uh, get into you know contentious strife with people second timothy two Verse 23, uh, we should not quarrel, um, am I in the wrong, oh, I'm sorry, 24, um, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, Second Timothy two twenty-five. in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will then grant them repentance. Uh, you know, being humble, you can be humble and be very strong. You can be humble and yield to God and still be very, very strong. It doesn't mean that we let people push us around and, and you know, uh, push us into breaking God's law, push us into uh, compromising on God's law. With that, I'd like to spend uh, the remainder of the sermon talking about some men of humility before the Lord. I've titled this a little section, Men of Humility Before the Lord, because these men... Um, give us, I think, great examples of powerful, powerful strength and a willingness and a strength to yield in their lives before God. These men were not perfect, but these are men of humility before the Lord. Men of mighty faith, men of incredible, tensile strength. And I want you to please notice the pattern. When we look at these four men, it's similar to the pattern we saw with Jesus Christ at the Mount of Olives. It's similar to the same pattern. You can study their lives and you'll see the pattern in their life. But God actually gave us verses in the Bible that he preserved that retains or preserves the pattern just within individual verses as well. And there's other men and women uh, that you could find where the, the same pattern is preserved in single scripture very interesting yielding to God and then God strengthens them and uses them notice the pattern <clears throat> the first man we'll look at and talk about briefly is Abraham let's turn back to Genesis 18 and as you do I'll remind uh, us about uh, Abraham's resume Abraham we know he is the forefather of the entire nation of Israel but remember Abraham was also rich wealthy Wealthy merchant, an owner of much livestock. He and his house were trained fighters. He and his house were not men to be trifled with. Abraham obeyed God's instruction to leave his home country, as you know. Abraham and his household accepted circumcision, the sign of the covenant. That alone is yielding to God and is... You know who you know who 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 else you know, would, would you do that? <clears throat> Hopefully you would. And he was called a friend of God. Second Chronicles twenty verse seven and James two twenty three mentions Abraham was a friend of God. He he met God, the word that became Christ. He met him, he ate with him, he talked to him. The word he became flesh. Genesis eighteen verse seventeen. So Genesis 18, verse 27, let's see what God preserved for us here about Abraham's um, character, his humility. Again, he wasn't perfect in everything he did, but he's the father of the faithful, and he was willing to yield his will to God's will. Genesis 18, verse 27, then Abraham answered and said, and this is in the uh, account regarding Sodom, uh, Abraham answered and said indeed now i am uh, i who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the lord he came before god humbly but he had amazing strength didn't he he was interceding for his fellow human beings before the lord but he didn't come before god argumentatively came before God humbly and then he says suppose there were five and the Lord said if I find or, or sorry suppose there were um, the lack of five and then the Lord said if if I find 45 I will not destroy it and you you know the rest of the account Abraham was a humble humble man and he was willing to yield but it doesn't doesn't mean that he was weak <clears throat> we know he was willing willing to yield because of his his uh, Willingness to sacrifice his his son, Isaac. But notice how when we're willing to yield, when we're humble, God will give us strength. Moses. Now, God used Moses to bring the entire nation of Israel out of slavery. Moses was a prophet. Moses was humanly a, a lawgiver. He was the author of the Pentateuch. At least, probably, that's what we think, and most of it. He had been a great Egyptian Prince and general. He spoke to God. He was also God's friend. God performed miracles through him. He interceded for Israel many times, didn't he? He's mentioned in Hebrews in the faith chapter, a mighty man of God. But let's also look at Moses' humility, his willingness to yield. Let's turn to Exodus chapter three. And the pattern will be a little more clear in this account. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11. We'll begin in verse 9. Exodus 3 verse 9. So uh, now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel has come up to me. And I have also seen the oppression with, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So he's speaking, God's speaking to Moses. And he says, come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God's telling him, I've got this big job for you, this this this, this you, you know, huge, huge job. And Moses' reply, and we all know this, Moses said, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? That I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And Moses did not say, thank you for recognizing my credentials. You're right. My resume is quite exhaustive. I cannot do a one-page resume. I have to do a two-page resume because I've done so much. You know, I was the general here and I conquered the Ethiopians and then there was all this other stuff and and then I even you know, got kicked out of Egypt, but I still you know, kind of made it pretty well and got married and, and have flocks. And, you know, I'm a self-made man. you you got the right guy. It is it is funny, but don't we do that sometimes? Don't we sometimes get frustrated and wonder why are we being tried instead of rewarded? And then if we are rewarded, we sort of say, well, it's about time. You know, yeah, I it, yep. You know, Moses had a really, you know, strong, amazing uh, career, but his response—and of course, he's talking to God—and I, you know, I think we'd all be hopefully fearful talking to God. But what is his response? It was, "Who am I if I should do this? You know, who, who am I? You know, there's, there's, maybe there's somebody else. I'm, I'm. You know, who am I?" Verse 12. Here's the the pattern. Here's the pattern. God then strengthens him. So he said, I will certainly be with you. When we have the strength to yield, God will strengthen us. Gideon. Gideon. Who was Gideon? Gideon was Israel's fifth judge. Brilliant. Brilliant. Military tactician. Gideon defeated the Midianite army. And as you may remember, he was offered the kingship. Hereditary kingship. He was offered the kingship and his sons were offered the kingship by the men of Israel. He refused it. He refused it. Right there you see uh, some insight into his humility. Gideon made his mistakes, but he was a strong man a mighty man of the lord he's also recorded in hebrews in the faith chapter let's turn to judges chapter six judges chapter six and see a little uh, bit of what god preserved for us regarding gideon and his humility and his willingness to yield his will to god's will judges chapter six i want to begin in verse 11 Judges 6, verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joas, uh, the Abiezite, uh, while the son of Gideon threshed, well, sorry, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So what we have here is Israel um, under duress, <clears throat> needing to pay uh, taxes, uh, to the Midianites, being oppressed by the Midianites, powerful lo- local uh, nation, the fairly powerful army at that time, and Israel was, you know, groaning under their oppression. And so the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, "Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor." <clears throat> indication that Gideon, you know, he wasn't just some, you know, uh, complete, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, scaredy cat. He you know he had some 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 strength uh, in him but the angel of the lord comes and says the lord is with you you mighty man of valor verse 15 and gideon said to him O oh my lord O oh my lord if the lord is with us why then has all this happened to us and where are all of his miracles which our fathers told us about saying do not did not the lord bring us up from egypt but now the lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites Gideon said essentially you know where have you been you've you've not been with us I I believe that you are but you've not been with us you've not delivered us where's the mighty signs where's the miracles what have you done in my life how have you helped me uh, conquer this and that and get through this and that and overcome this trial and that trial this was not a high mark a high spot Uh, In the history of Israel, or in Gideon's family's existence, or in Gideon's life, they were oppressed. Things were not going well for Israel at this time. We have to remember the historic context sometimes. We think of Gideon, he was a mighty man, he went out and did all these things. No, at this time, Gideon and Israel were under trial, duress, and God had not performed mighty signs and wonders in the nation recently. And so Gideon says... Where have you been? What, you know, where have you been? I I know about you from the, from the past. And so verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, uh, verse 14, go uh, in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. He was also humble before God. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you. And you will defeat the Midianites. When we yield to God, when we're humble before God, he will strengthen us. Last mighty man of strength, uh, Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah is considered by many to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, in part because of how much revelation God gave to him, uh, how much he wrote. Isaiah is quoted at least 50 times in the New Testament, and he was a religious and political counselor to the nation, to the king. You know, Isaiah's wife was a prophetess. Isaiah was a mighty man of God. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's ministry... Spanned the reigns of five kings of Judah. He rebuked soothsayers and you know, false prophets and those who wanted to be wizards. He prophesied, prophesied the coming of the Messiah. We won't turn to it, but in Isaiah chapter eleven there's that beautiful prophecy about the Prince of Peace and the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. Uh, Isaiah was a mighty man of God, used by God in a mighty way. Remember, it was Isaiah, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6, who inspired Hezekiah to turn to the Lord when Sennacherib's army had surrounded Jerusalem. That was Isaiah. And God sent the angel of the Lord to the defense of Jerusalem and destroyed Sennacherib's army of 185,000. That was Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. But we see humility with Isaiah as well. Isaiah 6, verse 5. Then I said, um, so this is the account of God's going to give him uh, the, the, the calling. God's calling him to be the prophet. And so Isaiah 6, verse six 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, He didn't say, you've called the right guy. That's right, I've got some capacity. He was humble. He said, woe is me. I've, I've seen the presence of, you know, I've come before God. And notice then the response. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he'd taken and touched his lips and gave him, um, took away his iniquity and, you know, started to give him these prophecies. God rewards humility. There's great strength in being able to yield. In our lives, we want to always be willing to yield our will to God's will, our will to God's law. Sometimes we won't understand what's going on in our life. There's a trial maybe we don't understand. Like many, many decades ago when uh, the church was teaching that Pentecost was on, you know, uh, Monday. And really it should have been counted differently and should have been on Sunday. Some people didn't understand. Some people left. It was an administrative, you know, uh, understanding that Mr. Armstrong had to come to. Sometimes in our life, we don't understand why we're dealing with a trial. But are we willing to yield our will to God's will regardless? Or do we stiffen ourselves? Because if we stiffen ourselves, that's the opposite of tensile strength, and we'll break. You know, tensile strength is important in skyscrapers and ships and satellites and, you know, medical equipment and buildings. It's also important in swords. It's important in swords. Some sword experts say that the measurement of a truly superior sword is that it must resist many thousands of cycles of being severely stressed, twisted, and bent, and must return to true every time. The characteristic of being able to flex when you're striking with a sword for it to be able to flex and not break uh, can mean the difference between that warrior surviving battle or not. It's a very important factor in the steel that goes into a sword. Japanese smiths discovered uh, many, many, a few centuries ago, uh, as did others, as did the Norsemen and the Germans at different times, they discovered that if they melted or smelted iron sand with little or no phosphorus, and they heated it together with coal to get the carbon introduced, that that would give their swords amazing strength and some flexibility. An ability to hold a sharp edge and the ability to bend and not break under stress. To bend and not break in battle. You know, it's interesting. A swordsmith who's manufacturing a sword or the steel to go into that sword, They'll heat the, uh, ovens to 1200 to 1500 degrees Celsius. And they'll work the ore for 72 hours. That's one reason why anciently swords were, you know, so expensive and they were revered. Because it was no easy thing to create a fine piece of steel that could be used for a sword. And the value was that these swords would not break, not shatter, when being used, when when put under pressure. The Japanese <clears throat> called this steel uh, by an interesting name. Now, I don't speak Japanese either. But you're getting three le- languages today. I guess four if we include English. Uh, and they they uh, it's called it's pronounced something like tamagani, tamagani. And the name <clears throat> in Japanese. Means jewel steel. Jewel steel. Jewel steel. And these swords were very famous for their beauty, their sharpness, their ability to cut, their ability to bend, and their ability to not break. You know, God's creating jewels in each of us, isn't He? And sometimes we have to be tested. 72 hours in 1500 degrees Celsius? That's, that's some pressure. That's some, that's some testing. That's some stress. But the result is something very, very strong. Let's turn back to James chapter 3 as we begin to wrap up. James chapter 3. Let's remember that the ability to yield to God's will, the strength to yield is Vital to our Christian development. The strength to yield to God. Is righteousness. Some people yield to sin. That's not strength. That's weakness. But the strength to yield to God. Is righteousness. And what does it say in, G- in uh, James. James chapter 3. Verse seven 15. James three verse seventeen James 3 seven is, is, is good, but not uh, exactly the, the scripture, but the wisdom that is from above, James 3 seventeen, the wisdom that is from above is first pure. we're not trying to meditate on wrong things or figure out ways to avoid or get around God's law, then peaceable. Then peaceable, not contentious, not stirring up trouble. Gentle, gentle, able to be worked with, willing to yield, willing to yield. There's great strength and great wisdom, I would add, in being willing to yield. So let's remember, brethren, that only the finest steel, only the best steel, can support muddy bridges, can be put into spacecraft, skyscrapers, and even the finest swords. Being strong enough to yield is not weakness. Being strong enough to yield to God is righteous strength.